This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. I was approached by Brett Stevens, who is the editor-in-chief of Sapir, this new quarterly journal, uh, each issue of which uh, revolves around a particular theme, and for each issue of which they invite a number of outsiders to, to contribute an essay that in one way or another touches on the theme. Uh, I was actually contacted to write for an earlier issue, the theme of which was Jewish continuity, and for various reasons that didn't work. Uh, I said, what do you have coming up down the road? And the next issue, the theme was aspirations. And the way it was pitched to me was, we're looking for a collection of moonshots, ideas that mm. uh, may seem a little far-fetched or, or uh, uh, you know, it, it difficult to, to imagine happening, but some bold, innovative idea that hasn't been done before, uh, come up with something and, and, and write it up for us. And I spent at least a month thinking, trying to think of ideas, talking to everybody that I knew, would this work, would that work? I kept thinking of one idea after another that I discovered on digging into it had actually one way or another been tried. Of course. Um, yeah. For example, I had thought, why not revive the old Chautauqua uh, program of, of a century ago when when uh, scholars and cultural innovators would be sent out to little small towns around America to expose them to big city ideas that they weren't having access to in the little towns. Hmm. Why not a Jewish Chautauqua? That was one of my original thoughts. Uh, turned out there once was such a thing in the 1910s, 1920s. There, somebody had actually done it. Um, uh, and then, and then, in, in course of one of these uh, conversations, I came up with the, you know, came up with this idea: why not uh, something that would make it possible for up-and-coming members of other faiths, clergy members of other faiths, uh, to have some exposure to Jewish learning and Jewish tradition. Um, biblical scholarship and Talmudic scholarship. And I read this beautiful essay, which I actually begin the uh, uh, my essay with, this beautiful essay by Archbishop Chaput, the former Archbishop of uh, Philadelphia, in which he describes going to the, to the main Beit Midrash, the main study hall at Yeshiva University, where the students were engaged in traditional Chavruta style, that's a study in pairs of, of Talmud. And as you can see in almost any serious Beit Midrash, it was loud and it was noisy and it was energetic and the students were debating and arguing with each other, hundreds and hundreds of them. And he came away just uh, bowled over by what he had seen and wrote this beautiful essay for First Things, the, the Christian journal, um, in which he talked about how there was something really beautiful about this to him as an outsider and that some of that spirit, he thought, would be wonderful to import into Christianity as well. Uh, that was kind of the, the start. And from that, I just worked on trying to think through what might a program like that look like. Yeah, and you called it in, in this essay on Superior Journal of the, and we'll put the link in the show notes, uh, you called it the uh, Jethro Project. Uh, not, not, no relation to Toll, right? So why, why no relation Jethro? To Tull, no, yeah. nothing to do with Aqualung. Uh, <laughs> Jethro uh, was Moses' father-in-law. I described him in the, in the book of Exodus. Uh, he was the father of Zipporah, who, whom Moses married. 
but more importantly, from my, I was trying to think of what would be a good name for it and a good biblical uh, elusive uh, a title. Um, Jethro is described in Jewish tradition and by at least some of the commentators, as always, there's argument about everything, uh, mm-hmm. but he's described in the Bible as a priest of Midian. And the, the sense that you get about him in some of the commentators is that he was a seeker of knowledge, a seeker of truth. Um, there's one tradition that said that he had been one of Pharaoh's advisors in Egypt. Hmm. Um, uh, it's, it, it is made very clear that he's uh, becomes a deep admirer of Moses, his son-in-law, and the Israelite people. He comes and he joins them uh, after the the giving of um, uh, the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. He even gives Moses some great management advice about how right. to handle you know the the constant crush of people who are coming before him with uh, with disputes and legal issues and litigation. Uh, and there's a point at, at which he is invited by Moses to stay with the Israelites and go with them to the promised land. And again, the sense that you get, or at least the sense that I get, is that he was invited to convert to Judaism and decided not to. And yet he remains very respectful, very interested. And I thought, that's kind of a, a paradigm for what for, for what I'm thinking let there be some kind of a program which would make it possible for people who are deeply serious about religion and serious about their own religion, uh, but nevertheless who who seek after truth and wisdom and learning from whatever source uh, it comes. Um, and I thought that would be a, a great name. So my idea, the Jethro Project. Yeah. And uh, to go back and uh, decode some of the language you've already given us, uh, you called it the Beit Midrash and Chavruta style. Uh, this is, uh, if, well, if, if somebody if somebody's never been to a yeshiva, a uh, yeshiva environment, maybe they've heard of a yeshiva, but they don't actually know what happens in a Beit Midras. Can you just describe uh, what we would experience if we walked in? I was actually in Jerusalem just in November, and I walked in the Jewish quarter by. You know, they have some very classical Beit, Beit Midras, and you can you can actually hear them from outside sure. Um, sure. because the the, the so noise of, all, of their for reasoning. People who happens. live on the East Coast, um, let me just distinguish the word yeshiva. Uh, as as we're using it, we're not talking about um, uh, an Orthodox Jewish high school. Where I come from, oh, they just yeah, call them, yeah. they, they sorry, just call them day schools, where I come from. But on the East Coast, they'll talk about he goes to yeshiva, and they just mean he's going to a Jewish high school. That's not what I'm referring to. Uh, a, 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 a yeshiva, which literally means sitting, is a place where people sit and study. They sit and, and learn uh, the Jewish texts. Um, Bible, Talmud, especially Talmud is always you know top of the line. Um, the, the the prophets, the commentaries, uh, uh, Jewish law, and so forth. Um, a Beit Midrash literally is a house of study. Every synagogue will have a room that's called the Beit Midrash, and that's the like the library. In in a major yeshiva, there are many of them now. Yeshiva University is is the best known one because maybe in this country because it. It's also a fully accredited American university, uh, but many many yeshiva in this country and in Israel focus solely on on Jewish studies. Um, and in the main Beit Midrash of a yeshiva, what you will typically see, often at almost all hours of the day, are um, people sitting generally in pairs, not always, but generally in pairs, working through a text. Uh, there they'll be reading some of the text and then discussing it and debating what it means and together exploring what the commentators have to say about it, uh, posing questions, answering questions. There's a great tradition in, in Jewish learning that it's not so much the answer that matters as a good question 
or many good mm-hmm. questions. Um, uh, and it can get very animated. It can get uh, very heated. It can get very, um, uh, uh, very electric. In that essay by uh, Archbishop Chaput that I mentioned, he, he said that it struck him as something like the sort of electrical current that runs between a man and a woman when they fall in love, that it not only runs between them, but it kind of affects the whole environment surrounding them. Hmm. And uh, so in, in, a, in, a, in a typical Beit Midrash of a, of, a, you know, of a major yeshiva, you will see that kind of liveliness, and it can get very noisy, um, uh, maybe seem very, uh, very off-putting or, or, or intimidating or, or strange to someone who's not, to someone who thinks of religious scholarship uh, has a vision of, you know, monks sitting quietly, uh, you know, or writing in the scriptorium, preserving perfect silence. Um, the no talking, this is the library concept doesn't apply in the, in the yeshiva or in the Beit Midrash. Yeah. And it's not quite a cacophony, but, uh, you, you can feel the energy in the room. Uh, and, uh, I, I wonder, I, oh, I can hear people thinking, uh, that sounds horrible. Like some people are going to think, I don't like to argue. In fact, I, I, I hate arguing. And here you're telling me that actually learning, uh, learning the thoughts of the commentators, which we come back and describe them in a little bit as well. Uh, does it have to be done through argument or is there another way? You know, this has been the style of, normative traditional Jewish learning for millennia. Um, the Talmud, which we can talk more about uh, if you like, but the, the Talmud, which after the Bible is far and away the most important religious Jewish text, and it was compiled in stages, but finished, um, uh, I'd say about 1500 years ago. So it's, you know, it's at least a millennium and a half old. Um, the Talmud is more than anything else, a collection of arguments. They are often arguments among contemporaries, but just as often arguments among scholars of different generations. A scholar in of one era might cite something that was said by one of his predecessors, you know, 50 years or, or 80 years earlier and agree with it or disagree with it or bring a challenge to it or bring a proof to support it. Uh, this has been the style of, of traditional Torah learning, uh, uh, Orthodox Jewish learning, you might say, um, for so long, I suppose it's possible to conceive of a system in which um, Jews would study Torah and would study Talmud and and, and would deepen their knowledge of, of Jewish learning in silence, um, but it would take me a while to, to come up with, uh, with to imagine how, how that might work. And I think there's a real, well, so there's a couple of things. One, there's a famous expression about the Torah. And by Torah, I don't just mean the five books of Moses, and I don't even mean just the Hebrew scripture. I mean the, the whole body of of, uh, uh, of Jewish learning that stems back, you know, dates back, let's say, to uh, to Sinai. There's a there's a there's a famous expression, "Shivim uh, panim la Torah." There are seventy faces to Torah. It's it's multifaceted. It has it. There might be the simple meaning of the text, but there are so many more meanings that can be uh, teased out beyond that. Uh, uh, a well-known passage that, um, that, that Orthodox Jews say every morning as part of their prayers uh, actually lists a number of the hermeneutic uh, techniques that are used to derive meaning 
or or be or turn passages in the Bible into proof texts. If a certain term is used in one passage and the same term is used in another passage, uh, very often the rabbis will say that indicates that A should be regarded in the same way as B, just mm-hmm. as, as one of, of countless possible examples. And I think to do that, you need to have people who are bouncing ideas off each other, who are uh, uh, who are probing for weaknesses, looking for strengths, trying to make sense of of what they're talking about. But I think beyond that, um, and I, I should say, I'm not a Talmudic scholar. I you know I, I don't spend my days in yeshiva studying. I'm a columnist for a for a for a daily newspaper. Um, but beyond that, I think that that what Jewish practice, Jewish study practice has learned over the years, over the centuries, is that you get more out of it when you're not doing it solo, when you're Mm -hmm. not doing it in silence, when you're hearing your own ideas uh, uh, being grappled with, challenged, uh, taken up, uh, fought with by other people. It it not only forces you to think through what you believe, but to recognize, you know, weaknesses in your own argument uh, forces you to maybe be more creative and nimble about uh, backing up what you're saying. Um, mm. So does it have to be, I, you know, in this universe, I guess nothing has to be, um, but it has certainly been a successful model. And, and there's no, uh, there's no tradition of study that has lasted longer than, mm. than Jewish studies. So I would say, um, you know, maybe you could come up with another way to do it, but this one seems to have worked pretty well for a long time. Uh, when I was living in uh, Jerusalem and we had these colloquia or uh, um, weekly colloquia and I was my term to present some of my work, uh, nobody warned me that, uh, you know, if you think about scholar, Jewish scholars coming up through this tradition that, you know, in the American or certainly the British uh, side of things, when you present your work, it's silent in the room. It's like, it's your, you have the floor, right? Yeah. It's your, you kind of control the show. Uh, nobody told me, uh, in my second week there that people will just jump right in and interrupt and say, you're wrong. And you, or you can't possibly say that because of X, Y, Z, you know, onward and on the spot, you have to be able to back up exactly what you're saying. And, um, I found it thrilling, terrifying and then thrilling. (laughs) Think of a Supreme court oral argument. Mm, or for that matter, an yeah. oral argument before you know before uh, any appellate court, but the Supreme, the U.S. Supreme Court is is the one that I think most of our listeners would be most familiar with. Uh, often, you know, the lawyer doesn't get through his first two sentences before one of the justices interrupts right. with the question. Although in this Zoom era, Zoom era, they've been a little more organized about it. Um, but they, uh, you know, I mean, I think that's a that's a that, in American terms, that's a pretty venerable tradition by now, mm. and. And you, I would say, as a you know, as one who has uh, been to the Supreme Court to, to listen during oral arguments, uh, at times it can be frustrating. Sometimes you'd like to hear the guy finish his sentence, but mm-hmm. at other times, uh, you can tell knowing that he may be challenged at any point forces him to be more prepared, uh, to be more creative. So now multiply that by you know by a, by a thousand years, or you know extend <laughs> that to a thousand years of, of, of Jewish study and. Uh, you know, I, I think I think it's a pretty successful model, mind you. My my essay isn't proposing that um, priests and ministers and imams um, uh, 
uh, you know, and, and, and monks should, should turn themselves into full-time scholars right. of, uh, you right. know, of the Talmud and of the Bible and should spend all their time arguing finer points of Jewish law. Uh, rather, my idea was to have some, some significant chunk of time, you know, maybe six months, maybe a year's sabbatical, in which to be immersed in this kind of environment, uh, even though it, it, it's not going to change their religion or their faith, the idea wouldn't be, you know, there'd be no conversionary purpose right. to it, but rather it would just open a window, open a door into a whole different way of, of approaching religion and grappling with religion and living uh, religion, not just as, not just as a collection of rules and regulations and, and, Jewish Judaism is filled with rules and regulations. It is, it is, uh, you know, quintessentially a, a commandment, a, a, a faith of commandments, but it's also a faith of learning and of study. Um, what some of my Christian clergy friends have told me is that there's just nothing like this in their tradition. Mm-hmm. The idea, for example, of interrogating a, a, a biblical text, not taking it, um, the surface meaning as the only meaning, but going deeper and deeper into it and trying to understand why would the Bible have put this this uh, this episode after that episode, for example? Mm-hmm. Uh, why would it use this particular term instead of that particular term? Uh, I, from what I've been told, and I'm not a, a scholar certainly of, of other religions, but from what I've told, been told, there's simply not a parallel to that kind of uh, you know, to that kind of analysis. Uh, in other religions, and I just think it would be. I think there's a lot of wisdom that the that the Jewish religion has to share with the world. The Bible says so, um, and uh, I, I think this just you know might be a, a great way to, to to share some of it and and, and spread it wider. And it to be wider. clear, yeah, you're you're not what you're not advocating is merely hey, people should pick up some books on Jewish thought and read those. Um, but actually, you're advocating an environment in which you learn. And and again, this is one of the things that strikes me as notably different from kind of Protestant Christians. I'm not sure if Catholics would fit in the same category as well, but um, there's a there's a heightened sense that when you read scripture, you need to write, arrive at the correct interpretation. Um, and one thing I've learned from being around Jewish scholars is uh, there's a lot more emphasis on method than uh, the point you arrive at. Um, in fact, there's a lot of resistance to say Jew- the term Jewish theology, um, uh, because that theology seems to entail like you have arrived at the position that you're supposed to be at. Um, and when I when I lived in Jerusalem, my office mate, uh, God bless her, she, um, I would constantly be going, now, how do you guys deal with this part of the Torah? And like, how do you deal with mortgages? And own, like, do you turn those over at seven years? And she'd go, ha, there's a Talmudic way around this. There uh, is, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> but, but, <laughs> Which, but, I mean, but you're touching on... You're touching on, a, on an absolutely vital point. Hmm. You know, there in, in the in the Talmudic era, um, back in Babylonia, which is where the, the there are actually two Talmuds. There's a Babylonian Talmud and a Jerusalem Talmud. The Babylonian Talmud is the one that became uh, uh, the most important and the most influential. Um, and when people talk about studying Talmud, ninety nine times out of a hundred, that's the one that they're talking about. Hmm. And in the, the 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 Babylonian era, when when the Talmud was being compiled. Two of the great schools of thought, two of the competing approaches to, to Jewish law were the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. And there are many, many examples in Jewish law of the school of Hillel 
uh, ruling in one way and the school of Shammai ruling in another way. To take one of the less important, um, but perhaps best known or easiest to understand examples, um, what in what way should the should the candles be lit on Hanukkah? Mm. The school of Hillel ruled that you start with one and the next night two and the next night three until you come to eight. The school of Shammai ruled, no, you start with eight and you go down each night until you mm. come to one. That's just one, one tiny uh, but colorful example. Um, by and large, the school of Hillel was much more lenient in its interpretation of Jewish law. The school of Shammai was much more rigorous and much more... Uh, 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 you know, much more more constricted and and um, uh, uh, and they debated, they argued. The the arguments you know surface constantly throughout the Talmud. And there's a very right. and uh, can I can I sorry to do a very Jewish thing? Can I interrupt you and sure. um, make you justify? <clears throat> excuse me, because I think a lot of Christians would hear that the candle lighting thing, and they go, "What? What is the? Who cares which you know way you light the candles? And, and I, I'm going to guess because I don't know this particular instance, but I'm going to guess it's not you should light them starting with eight, working way down, or the other way, for no reason. It's not like they just right. took two different sides. They actually gave reasons why you should do it in this particular way that ties back into a deep network of reasoning as well. Right. Well, the 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 story is. I mean, just to take the 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 Hanukkah menorah. The story is that there was the. the the, the temple had been violated, and the the, uh, the Seleucid Greeks had had you know wrought havoc, um, and then Judah Maccabee uh, led you know the Jewish forces and and purged the temple of the of the of the Hellenists and rededicated it to Jewish service. And all that they could find, so the story went, was one vial of olive oil with which to light enough for one night, um, and yet it lasted for eight days. Again, so the story says, until there was a time there was enough time to uh, to produce more oil how do you commemorate that so the the rabbis ruled that that every jewish household should should publicize this miracle um the aramaic term is persume nisa they should publicize mm-hmm. the miracle by for those eight nights lighting uh you know lighting candles in their home um, all the rabbis agreed all you have to light is one candle per night but it it very quickly became the norm that actually the number changes night by night and the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai debated what's the what's the right way to do it. The idea on from the Hillel Hillelians, you might say, hmm. is with each additional night that the with each additional day that the that the oil burned, the miracle grew greater and greater. And therefore, start with one, and then the next night hmm. it's still burning. Go to two. The next night it's still burning. Go to three, and that shows the you know the increase in the the miraculousness of what had taken place. The uh, Shammai argument was, on the contrary, we know how, how it, now that we know how it turned out, on the very first night, there were eight, eight future days of light that were mm. to come. But on the second day, there were only seven uh, future days of light that were to come from that one vial of oil. The third day, you know, a little bit less. The fourth day, a little bit less. As I say, this is not by any means the most important argument. It's certainly not the most right. consequential one. It's just a colorful one that explains. The reason I bring up Hillel and Shammai is that there's a, a famous um, uh, uh, a famous passage in I think the Talmud uh, tractate of Eruvin, in which it talks about how the two schools fought furiously with each other, fought furiously on principle, but fought furiously with each other, um, and in the end it says a botkol, a voice from heaven, a heavenly voice rang out and says 
and, and I mean, just, just give it in the Hebrew, Elu Elu Divrei Elohim Chaim Heim. Both this school's uh, approach and this school's approach are the words of the living God. The halacha can beit hillel, but the, but in practical terms, the actual binding law follows the the law of hillel, the ruling of hillel. And in fact, in almost every area, what the school of hillel contended for is the one that became normative Jewish law. There are a few exceptions, mm-hmm. but generally speaking. And then it goes on to talk about why hillel and not shammai. But when you ask, when you say you know, an outsider hearing this might think, how can you possibly uh, have a coherent uh, religious system if everybody's arguing with each other all the time? Um, you can see, looking at Jewish history and looking at Jewish law, that the, the arguments can be vehement, and then over time, uh, consensus is reached. Mm-hmm. And that then becomes normative. That then that then takes hold. Uh, it works. It, it just it, it works. Um, the, uh, the the great Jewish code of law, the Shulchan Aruch, was written by um, uh, Joseph Caro, who represented the uh, uh, the Sephardic uh, Jewish tradition. Um, and there are many cases. This was only a few hundred years ago, which in Jewish terms is pretty recent. Uh, and he and he ruled. He wrote a code of law that was meant to be a guide for daily Jewish life. For anyone who, who wanted to know how to live, you know, a proper Jewish existence, in in his case, many of the things that he said were what the Sephardic Jewish world was doing. Right. Um, constantly throughout the Shulchan Aruch, there are glosses that are added by a Polish sage, Rabbi Moses Iserlis, known as the Rama, who often will say, "But in our communities, meaning in the communities of Europe, as opposed to the communities of the Middle East, uh, you know, we do this way." So there can be differences of practice. Um, uh, so I guess I'm answering in both ways. At, at, in, in some cases, consensus is reached and the arguments of, of olden days fade away as the whole Jewish world, the whole observant Jewish world coalesces around one particular way of doing something. And there are also different traditions. Um, tradition mm-hmm. is very important in Jewish law. Uh, there are, we have, you know, different families will have their own traditions. Different communities will have their own traditions. In my, in my, um, uh, in the, in the, the Chumash, how do you say Chumash? In the, 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 uh, the, the, uh, the, the old test, the, the Hebrew, the, Mo, the five books of Moses, uh, which are in, in book form in my synagogue, you know, that everybody has to follow the Torah reading every week. Um, at the end of the Torah reading, there is a reading from the prophets uh, called the Haftarah. Which is a very ancient practice. You could actually, uh, there's a reference in the in, in the New Testament to Jesus right. going to the Jesus synagogue and reading from the prophets. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So even in even in, in as far back as Jesus's time, haftarah was already very well accepted. But there are a number of cases in my in my chumash in my uh, in, in my Bible where it will say Jews from the community of Frankfurt read the following text as their mm. haftarah. Or, or Sephardic Jews will read this particular uh, uh, text. Um, in the past year, my family um, uh, suffered a couple of uh, hard blows. Both of, of my parents passed away. Mm, uh, sorry. My parents lived in Israel for, for the past 25, 30 years, um, and, and they both passed away, and they're buried in, in the city of Beit Shemesh. And we were mm. told by the, uh, the Hebra Kadisha, the burial society, that they follow in their cemetery the 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 tradition the Jerusalem tradition if you bury someone in Haifa or you bury someone in Eilat or you bury someone in Tel Aviv 
there will be certain, you know, certain customs that are not observed or that are observed differently in Jerusalem. So I would say Judaism has managed to very nicely harmonize both the idea of of debating an issue through until everybody comes to a consensus, as well as preserving the uh, the variety and the diversity of different traditions. Um, uh, and I would say both of them are part of the, the, the vitality and the energy um, that has kept Judaism uh, so strong for so long. What do you think that uh, Christians or non-Jews, because you would imagine a, a mixture, a mixed multitude of people coming in this Jethro uh, project and studying, but so what, what do we gain from entering this world and, and learning um, from, you know, what has classically been called the gift of the Jews, right? Uh, well, f- I would say, first and foremost, there's knowledge for its own sake, learning for its own sake. Uh, but in particular, the thought that motivated me initially as I was thinking about this is that I wanted, is that I thought it would be valuable for people who take religion seriously, which is why this is all written uh, as a program that would be pitched for the created for the benefit of clergy members, people who take religion seriously, who take their own religion seriously, and who presumably regard religion not just as an abstract intellectual exercise, but as something that you know that that has a, a an important kernel of of truth. Uh, I want them. I thought that the Jethro project would make it possible for them, first and foremost, to just have a deeper understanding of Jews and Judaism, um, you know, of the people of the book. And of those books, uh, because, you know, at least most of the world's, um, uh, all of the world's monotheistic religions certainly uh, derive from that, tap into that. So that's one. Um, uh, the, the roots that Christianity and Islam and Judaism share, I think, is, is something that would be, um, uh, understand that better, would, to, to understand that better, what I think would be a benefit. Um, and while I'm not, you know, I, I'm not a clergy member. I don't engage in pastoral practice. Um, it's it seemed to me that this would be a way for for Christian pastors, for Protestant uh, uh, ministers, for um, uh, for for Muslim and you know Hindu and and Buddhist uh, uh, clergy members to enrich their own pastoral practice by getting some sense of of how these things are handled in in the Jewish world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, given the importance of Israel, um, in, you know, in, in public discourse, you know, that, that little Jewish country has such an outsized, uh, impact, um, the world's politics and, 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 uh, you know, and, and emotional debates that take place, uh, to get a clear understanding of something that I think a lot of non-Jews simply have never quite grasped, which is the absolute centrality of the land of Israel, uh, mm. to, to, to the religion of Israel, to the you know to the religion of the of the of, of, of the people you know who descended from the patriarch Israel, um, all of those I think would be um, would, would be a way of making Christian pastors even stronger in their Christianity and Muslim pastors more knowledgeable in their Islam and uh, and if it helps build uh, understanding and build some bridges between uh, you know the tiny Jewish people and you know the, the the mighty religions of 
uh, of Christianity and Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism that have so many more adherents and so many more followers um, than Jews do, so much the better. Uh, as evidence of what you're suggesting, uh, so I participate every once in a while of taking college students over to Israel, uh, and you know they have like a ten day. It's kind of like a birthright for Christians. This ten day, they learn about modern Israel. They learn about the, they go into the West Bank. They uh, go to biblical sites. It's immersive and exhausting, you know, from morning to evening. Um, and when you ask students, this was actually shocking to me. When you ask students at the end of that, what was your, what was the thing that really got you? Mm-hmm. And you're expe- I, yeah, as Christians, you know, kind of expecting to say, oh, when we walking through the streets of Jerusalem or something like that. Can I take it's, a guess? Yeah, go, yeah, go ahead. I'm going to guess that it would be something like, I mean, I could be totally off here, but uh, presumably you take them to, to, to the Kotel, to the, to the Western Wall. And if, we, we do. And if you take them there on a Friday afternoon as the sun goes down and the Sabbath comes in, that's an experience that I think for, for countless people who have been hearing the word Sabbath all their lives but never really experienced it is probably something that they couldn't have imagined until they saw it with their own eyes. So you are like right on top of it. So if, if you can, you try to do that on a Sabbath so they can experience the Sabbath. Not always possible depending on how the date's lined up. Uh, but it, it, it's a Sabbath. They, they do a Sabbath of a lifetime, which is this program where you go into a Jewish family's house. So it's kind of like the most extreme Sabbath ceremony. It's usually with people who are just, they're, they're usually from the West who've just moved to Israel and they're really excited about Aliyah and stuff, but they really go all out and they welcome students into their house and they share a Sabbath meal and they talk about what they do on Sabbath and why they do it that way. That like nine times out of 10 for students is going to be the defining experience of their time in Israel. Um, which the first, the first year this happened, it just shocked me. I was like, really uh, of all that stuff we did, that was the thing. Cause I thought Sabbath was great. And of course I'm harping on them week in and week out back in the semester going, you guys should really be practicing Sabbath, right? This is, this is an eternal command. Um, well, but what does what that drove- mean? when you say you harp on them to do it, what does it mean? What are you calling on them to do in their own lives? Uh, to take a day of cessation and, you know, I, I, maybe not the eternal Sabbath of the Friday, Friday sundown to Friday, uh, uh, sorry, Saturday sundown, uh, but to have a day of, of a break, which is almost impossible for them. You, you get, you get it kind of two ways with Americans is, you know, they, they don't want to take a day of break, but then they also don't believe in working six days a week. So it's a, it's a weird, <laughs> it's a weird conundrum for, uh, Christians. You know, so you, necessarily, you're right. Yeah, go ahead. It's Sorry. an eternal commandment. It's one of the one of the ten commandments. So presumably, it's you know, it's one of the biggies. Um, and I, if if you grew up in the United States, you hear of Sabbath more as a concept or as a almost as a metaphor than as right. something that's actually central to to you know your 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 life your, your lives week in and week out. Uh, Americans will read about. You know Plymouth Plantation. So I'm speaking to you from Boston. You read about the May, you know, the, the Pilgrims coming over in the Mayflower and William Bradford enforcing the Sabbath rules, or we had the Blue mm. Laws in New England for so long. Things that couldn't be done on Sunday, the, the Christian Sabbath. But I think to a lot of Americans, that even to a lot of religious Americans, that has almost a kind of archaic, uh, um, right, uh, uh, irrelevant, you know, irrelevant to modern life feel to it. Uh, and yet, as you say, this is one of the one of the one of the one of the ten biggies. <laughs> uh, and then you see what Sabbath looks like in in religious Jewish life, observant Jewish life, 
and it, there's just a whole transformation. And I get it. I will admit, you know, I I am, uh, you know, an observant Jew, grew up in an observant Jewish household. So for me, the Sabbath, Shabbat is is very familiar. But as a kid, as a teenager, even into my early 20s, um, right. maybe not so early 20s, maybe even later 20s, it seemed more burden than anything else. Mm. And it's only as I've gotten older, only as I got older, that I came to really appreciate the the transformation that those 24 or 25 hours uh, can work in your life, the way it completely right. resets your internal emotional clock. Uh, um, you mentioned um, in, in our conversation before, uh, I think you mentioned the Chabad, the, uh, mm-hmm. the, the Hasidic movement, which is great on Jewish outreach. And they used to have these bumper stickers that they would show a cat, a kitten, like hanging from a branch. And, the, and the, the, the caption would say, hang on, Shabbat is coming. Um, <laughs> I now go through my, through, my, through my week, you know, my days, um, uh, day by day thinking, I can't wait till, till right. Friday afternoon. Uh, I, I appreciate it so much more as, you know, as, as an older adult, somebody with kids, somebody with family. Um, mm. So I'm not surprised to hear that when you take Christian students to, to Israel and they experience that the first time that it has a, a real eye-opening impact. And and this may sound tangential to many, but like, why are we talking about Sabbath and Jewish Islam, Christian learning? But I can't imagine uh, when we're, we're talking about the Jethro project, that that wouldn't also include uh, participating in Sabbath, participating in kind of the full life uh, of the Jewish community as well, as much as is possible for a gender. Yeah, I, I outline in the essay various areas of study that I think would be valuable to do, but I also suggest that there would have to be uh, a trip to Israel as part of yeah. it um, in order just to experience the kinds of things the Sabbath would be. I mean, we have Sabbath in, you know, in every Jewish community, but there, there's something about seeing it in a Jewish country, in a, a Jewish population um, uh, with people from every every form of, of Jewish background um, that I think you just don't experience elsewhere. Um, and there are also other things that uh, that you experience by going to Israel in person. There are any number of laws. The study of Jewish law would be a, a, a piece of the project as well. And there are any number of Jewish laws that apply only in the land of Israel, various hmm. agricultural rules and laws and so forth. Um, uh I would also add, I mean, I, be, I begin with this when I suggest a, a, a proposed curriculum, and, um, and I don't think we should, I don't think we want to skip it, um, the importance of Hebrew, getting at least some, right. some you know, elementary understanding of Hebrew language. Uh, the revival of Hebrew as a living language in modern times is unprecedented in, in, mm. in the history of human linguistics. Um, for, the, for, the, for centuries, Hebrew was thought of in the same way as Latin or, right. or or ancient Greek was thought of um, as a language that's that was used that was spoken in olden days that has religious application nowadays, but certainly is not the language, you know, the lingua, the lingua franca of uh, of any living community today. And then along came the Zionists in the, the late eighteen hundreds, beginning of early nineteen hundreds, and especially Eliezer ben Yehuda and and. and uh, um, Eliezer ben Yehuda, was that his name? Who who made it his his life's passion to revive Hebrew as as a living language? And you go to right. Israel now, and you see a country in which eight million people uh, speak Hebrew as their first language. Uh, you can't understand Judaism if you can't understand it properly if you don't have some grasp on Hebrew. Uh, as as your students certainly 
you know, all know you get much more out of Hebrew texts if you know some of the Hebrew um, uh, and, and can see what happens with the words in, in context. Uh, and Hebrew, I think, is where is where study of Jewish law has to begin. When I went to, to the Hebrew Academy of Cleveland, um, you know, they began in kindergarten with Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalid, you know, teaching us the, the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, that, too, I think is is um, is vital both to Jewish understanding, but also to realizing the possibilities of, of revival and energy that come uh, from something as seemingly impossible uh, as bringing a dead language back to life. If that could be done, what can't be done? Yeah, and, and to to that extent, we are actually actively working on uh, bringing Hebrew in as the primary classical language in Christian uh, secondary education on programs to help Christians learn Hebrew as a matter of course, just like if you, if you do Bible study, you should just know some Hebrew. It's, it's, we already are, there's already people working on this who just say, uh, you already know how to speak a language. Uh, you can extend that fairly easily. A little bit of Hebrew goes a long way in understanding the Bible. Uh, So we, it's actually our hope that Hebrew and then Greek, but, uh, it is the case that even for Christians, the most important texts in human history are written in Hebrew uh, and then later translated into Greek and then later reiterated in Hebrew and Greek as well. So, And in the Western uh, world for, for up until relatively recently, you know, 150 years ago or so, the study of Hebrew uh, was was right up there with the study of Greek and Latin. I yeah. believe at, uh, at Harvard and Dartmouth, maybe Yale for yeah, quite a while. Yeah, standard language. For there was pastors. an annual... Uh, Hebrew oration, just like there was an annual uh, uh, Latin and Greek oration. Yep. You look at the logos of a number of the, of the Ivy League schools, and you know th- there's there's Hebrew in those right. uh, in those logos. Um, I remember reading about Ezra Stiles, who was the president, I think, of Yale University, one of the first presidents of Yale University, who was a committed Hebraist and who studied Hebrew. And I I, I, I Got to track this down sometime just because I want to see it. Who wrote a letter to one of his correspondents describing what had happened at the Battle of Bunker Hill in Hebrew? Hmm. Now, I, oh, yeah. Th- this well, is email you know, that to me if you find <laughs> that. I'd be very interested to see that. Remarkable. Um, well, Jeff Jacoby, thank you for taking your time off of uh, writing for the Boston Globe to, to spend a little time uh, thinking about this issue of. Uh, Christians and Gentiles in general entering the world of Judaism and, and learning alongside our sisters and brothers uh, in Judaism, uh, not just for the sake of learning about Judaism, but for the sake of learning about ourselves and our own faith. Uh, we appreciate your time and your wisdom on this. This was great, Drew. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.